Hello and welcome to the Brew Theology Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Miller, and on today's episode, we have a special guest, Rabbi Stephen Booth Nadav. He came and spoke to our Denver community a couple of weeks ago. Steve is a native of Chicago. Go Cubbies. He's a graduate of the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College in Philadelphia, which he'll talk a bit about. And now in his 25th year as a rabbi, he is the chaplain of the Kavod Center, the Senior Life Center, and the director of Wisdom House Denver, a center for multi-faith engagement and spiritual inquiry. His greatest passions these days include spiritual eldering, multi-faith engagement, wilderness spirituality, meditation, and his daughter, who just turned 14. He was a student of Rabbi Zalman Shakter Shalomi, which I'm sure I totally mispronounced, and this person inspired Jewish renewal. We'll be talking to Rabbi Steve about awe and wonder, channeling the great modern Jewish philosopher Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, one of my favorite authors. Please make sure after the episode that you rate us on iTunes. Give us a nice five-star review, por favor, and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Brew Theology, as well as Twitter, Brew underscore Theology. Make sure you check out the latest website, uh-huh, latest website on the interwebs, www.brewtheology.org. Share that hopalicious goodness with, with your friends, your family, your acquaintances. We want to brew theology across this nation, getting these pub communities everywhere in the cities, in the towns, churches, nonprofits, you name it. Brew theology. Hashtag that, baby. All right. Have fun with this episode. Share the brew. Peace. Okay, friends, good to have you here tonight, and it's good to have Rabbi Stephen Booth Nadav with us this evening. Tonight's episode, we'll, we'll be talking about awe and wonder, and before we dive into that and interview you with all kinds of fun stuff, I want to give a shout out to Wits End Brewing Company in South Central Denver. Really cool spot there. Yeah, we're, yeah. doing it. We're drinking the lovely FL IPA, the black toasty citrusy IPA. If you like IPAs, or if you don't like IPAs, this one's unique, so check that one out. And we don't have this beer here tonight, but it is a Jean-Claude Van Blonde. They won a gold, yeah, it's a fun name, the gold in the GABF, and they also won the bronze in the World Cup of Beer. Wow. That's a big deal. Uh, we also have the Ugly Sweater Beer, which is a brown, Belgian, really good Brian, you love it. It's delicious. It's I, awesome. I want more of it. I'm actually yeah. drinking both mixed together, accidentally. That's and my it, fault. And it's a nice combo. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we Shout out any which way, it's still good. Sorry to wit's end for that. So either we I apologize to, to Scott, the owner, or we say, hey, Scott, do this at the brewery. Some people may like it. So yeah, Scott's a cool guy. Go check out Wits Inn in Denver. Okay, so uh, here we are. We're going to do a quick introduction of ourselves uh, and our religious backgrounds, and then we'll get to Stephen here. So I'm Ryan. I grew up Southern Baptist Evangelical, and I'm no longer that. I'm now an evolving, Jesus-following, open-tent, Anabaptist, Methodocostal follower of Jesus. Cat lover. And I love those <laughs> cats. Yeah. Cat, there are cats in the room, by the way. So if you hear, yeah, yeah. a lot of cats. <laughs> yeah. And I'm going to add another label to that in 2017. There you have it. Keep Can't wait. Yeah. Uh, I'm Janelle. I came out of the Church of the Nazarene, and I now wear the label of progressive Christian. So I'm Liz, and uh, I came out of being an independently devout Christian to being an atheist, and now I'm a Buddhist. 
My name's Adam, and I grew up in the Churches of Christ tradition, and now I would just call myself a progressive Christian. I'm Shoshana. I was raised Jewish, full-blooded, as I like to say, <laughs> and um, just trying to figure out where Judaism has a place in my life, but still, still doing the Jew, so. And I'm Brian. I grew up evangelical Protestant, and I count myself as somewhat of an agnostic Christian now. So we're all going to just feel free anytime to ask Stephen questions. We're obviously going to be following a lot of the talk that you had last week at the pub at Blue Moon Brewing about awe and wonder with Abraham and Joshua Heschel kind of channeling that. Uh, but before we get into any of his quotes and your commentary on that, who is Stephen? Who is Steve? Who, who was little Steve back in the day? How did you become a rabbi? Um, I was born in Chicago to uh, two very um, assimilated Jewish parents uh, who had, uh, you know, from their grandparents who had immigrated to this country, had run as far away from that separate identity as they could. They were Jewish, but they wouldn't consider joining a synagogue or, uh, um, yeah, anything like that. So I became a rabbi in order to rebel against my parents. Isn't that what everybody does? <laughs> of course. <laughs> so a little bit of what I shared the other night, last week, uh, was um, uh, when I got out, of, I, I stayed away. I did, I did become a bar mitzvah in a ceremony that uh, my great aunt Esther sort of made happen, but I was really pretty disconnected from my Judaism, and that really did it for me. I decided um, I wanted... Nothing to do with it after my bar mitzvah. Um, stayed away from it till the end of college and uh, explored other things, explored um, Buddhism and yoga and studied with uh, Yogananda and uh, learned to meditate and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, but then I met actually at the Jewish Student Center at the University of Minnesota, a Native American um, Ojibwe elder by the name of Eddie Benton Benet. And... Um, and I went to uh, a camp out, sort of, of three tribes up in the northern woods of Minnesota that he invited me to. And um, long story short is he said, you know, we're, we're kind of used to white people coming in here and ripping off Native American culture and, and really giving us nothing in return. And so that's why if people seem hesitant uh, to connect with you. That's why. And he turns to me and he says, but you, you come from a rich, cool tradition. Why don't you go learn about it and then come back and we'll actually have a real exchange. So he knew that I wasn't that connected to, to my Judaism at that time. So I credit Eddie with uh, um, one of the people who sent me to rabbinical school. So I attended the Recon so again, jumping many years, I attended the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College in Philadelphia. Um, and uh, that was like seven or eight years of, uh, of work. And then uh, lived in Jerusalem for about a year and a half in the middle of that. And uh, about a year after I graduated, I had an invitation to spend time on the Navajo Reservation. And it was over what we call Shabbat Breshit, the, the first where we begin the cycle again of reading the Torah from the beginning to the end. We're reading the creation story from Genesis 1-1. And um, we brought a Torah with us. And we had a week of ex five days of exchanging Creation stories with Navajo teachers and leaders, and it was you know camped out in at, on the at, in Canyon de Chez, and it was an amazing experience. And while I was there, I 
realized that the things that are most important to me include what I call doing Jewish and being outdoors and physical. And I knew that from then on. It was very clear to me. Um, I was working at the University of Delaware at that point. Then I went on to congregational work in Michigan and then here in Denver for 11 years um, as a congregational rabbi. And I kept my doing Jewish and my outdoors and physical alive, but not together that much. Um, and then that started coming together to me after I left congregational work. And, um, and so I knew that doing Jewish, outdoors and physical, I worked with a project here called Adventure Rabbi, um, Synagogue Without Walls. And, um, but I also knew that I loved this multi-faith thing. Um, and I wasn't sure that there was any connection. I was kind of wondering, like, is that just, it seems really important to me. Um, and then one day it just dawned on me that I learned that doing Jewish and being outdoors and physical was central to who I am. Where did I learn it? I learned it on the Navajo reservation, mm-hmm. being hosted by another culture that was helping me in a sense, see myself better. It didn't hurt that it was a earth-based culture. Um, and uh, so that's uh, kind of what I'm about today in many ways, though I also now have some other things I'm doing. Um, so today I work as a chaplain at uh, Kavod Senior Life, which I uh, call a uh, Jewishly hosted, multi-faith, affordable housing senior community. Um, and uh, I'm, I learn a ton from my residents all the time. It's really phenomenal to work with elders. Um, and I run a little project called Wisdom House Denver, which is a center for multi-faith engagement and spiritual inquiry. And I get requests all the time to help people be exposed to and learn about other faith traditions. So, for example, just today I was communicating with uh, Metro State about, uh, uh, I, I, I usually do bring with me people from other faith traditions to help them do their MLK Peace Breakfast. Mm-hmm. Um, I just did a, organized a panel at uh, Chatfield High School for high school seniors for two hours. And... Uh, five-part program on Judaism and Islam at Episcopal Church downtown and Habitat for Humanity. I get calls all the time wanting me to help people get to know a face other than their own. I feel like I can speak for us all and say, I want to shadow you. Yes, yes. <laughs> for real. That sounds yep. pretty awesome. Yes. Oh, wow. Okay, so before we move on to tonight's theme of awe and wonder, uh, which you shared with us last week so brilliantly, brilliantly and Awesomely, and let this all go in. No, it was a great. Oh, that was pretty sweet. Yeah, that was great. I'd love to read your words here. Okay. And have you elaborate on this a bit. Thanks for, since I work with seniors, you'll have to remind me what I said because I don't remember. (laughs) (laughs) You said every religion is part of spirit, is in spirit, points to spirit. It is the truth behind and embedded in all religion, all life. Many today hunger for a more direct experience of that spirit. There are many ways to get there. Part of my job as a rabbi is to help people find that experience, that truth, through the lens of Judaism. We could stay there all night. There's so much in that. But elaborate a bit, comment on that quote, because that that was one of your initial paragraphs Mm -hmm. uh, in the write-up. And it, it stayed with me pretty much for two weeks. Wow. Yeah. Um, well, I'm not positive, but I think what might be relevant to that is another little story I tell sometimes. 
I'm also on the um, Religious Advisory Council for the University of Denver. Been doing that for about a decade. And um, God, six years ago or so, we brought um, Parker Palmer to town. Um, If you don't know about Parker Palmer, you should. Uh, look up anything he wrote. He's amazing, amazing guy. His first book was The Courage to Teach. Um, there's another one called A Hidden Wholeness. There's a new one, um, a couple years old now, on uh, Healing the Heart of Democracy, extremely relevant for today. But anyway, so Parker is this phenomenal teacher and leader, um, and there's a group of religious leaders connected to DU that have been meeting and studying his stuff, and we brought him to the University of Denver. And I'll never forget, we were at this big dinner with him one night, and he said, I'm so glad to be, um, that you, that these, this multi-faith community of religious leaders is uh, taking on this work. And he said, you know, how I see it is this. It's like, he called, you know, multi-faith work could be, it's like, I'm sorry, he said, he said interfaith dialogue is often two people, and he's taking his hands, his right and left hand, and he's just sort of, and he lifts them up, it's, it's like, Two people sort of leaving themselves behind so that they can have a conversation up here. Like, you know, leave your religion, your stuff behind so that you can have a conversation up here. And he said the problem with that is that it's often a conversation about air. (laughs) He said, I think of it differently. Imagine that we're all trees. And there's the Christian tree and the Jewish tree and the Muslim tree and the Buddhist tree and the Hindu tree. All these different kinds of trees, they're all different, but they all have roots. And those roots go down and tap the same spirit, the same living water. And I'm translating in my head, Maim Chaim, it's a, in Hebrew, living water. They're all tapping the same, the same living water that feeds them all. And so he says, the conversation should be happening down there. The conversation be, should be happening in the roots. Come on. Eleven. Can we just end the podcast right now? (laughs) Yeah, right. And we're done. (laughs) Preach, preach. You're you're talking about this idea of, like, them leaving themselves behind and coming to this conversation, but it's like we never leave ourselves behind because the way that we are able to communicate or articulate ourselves is based in, like, the building blocks of our, like, experiences. Mm -hmm. And so even if we try to strip ourselves of that, it's still so, like, deeply embedded in our, like, ability to communicate. Well, I think, I think there's a lot of truth to that, and I think part of what he's saying is that we tend to, you know, when we're trying to have especially, you know, a deep communication with people who are significantly different than us, mm-hmm. we often say, okay, so if I'm going to have a conversation with you, I've got to drop my difference sure. so that I can meet you. Yeah, a, it's like walking on eggshells so we can, like, understand each other, but then we're not really understanding each other because we're not talking about what we need to understand. Right. And he's also saying that in terms of spirit that those religions have, have roots that go deep, and there's a strength. I think he's implying that there's a strength and a power and a richness and a wisdom that's in those roots sure. yeah. that have been nourishing that tree for generations and generations. Mm-hmm. So, so he's talking about it. So he was talking to religious leaders. Mm-hmm. So maybe he would say something different to the general public. You know, as we know, um, uh, S. SBN, SBNRs, spiritual but not religious people, is the, is the largest and fastest growing denomination in America today. I'm not sure if that's who he's talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, he might be, and I, I could be wrong, but he might be saying that 
if you kind of like what Eddie Benton Benet was saying to me, if you go deep into your roots or into any one path that you choose and then go deep there, then then you can have a different kind of conversation. So when I'm talking, especially with religious leaders who have deep roots, the conversations that we can have if we're open to this kind of stuff is very different than the conversation I would have from somebody who's just sort of floating around looking for roots or looking for a tradition or something like Mm -hmm. that. And I don't, floating around, that sounds pejorative, and I don't mean to sound pejorative. You know, we all have different stages in our lives. So, 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 just on a practical level, then, because I'm I'm somebody who you know, I I really enjoy getting down into the roots, and it's always on my mind, and I'm always curious about you know people's uh, spiritual or faith backgrounds. But I I I have trouble because I want them to know that I'm in a safe place, like I'm a safe place, and that. You know, my soil, so to speak, isn't better than theirs or anything. I'm just curious and I want to have those conversations. So maybe if you could just speak to what are some practical tools that you can give people who are looking for that deeper experience without saying that, oh, what I'm saying is is the the way or the thing. Like, how can you open that conversation in a safe way? Wow. <laughs> really good question. And I think, in particular, um, that problem comes up in well, it comes up in a lot of countries. But in this country, that problem comes up a lot around people who come from traditional evangelical backgrounds, where non-Christians are are automatically worried about you. Right. <laughs> We're worried you're trying to convert us. You've got some other agenda. You and and or I just like do I really want to talk with somebody? Who thinks that they've got the handle on truth, um, and and this is not really going to be a conversation. This is going. It's like, so that's tricky from right. that from that perspective. But I think that if you just upfront say kind of like what you said that 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 look, you know, I really think that all faiths are um, are pathways to a deeper truth, yeah. and and I've got mine, and I just and and I actually think that. Mine might be deepened by me learning from you. Um, So tell me. So fortunately, I think me telling stories probably is a good thing, and I can keep thinking of different stories here. So I was actually meeting with an Episcopal priest um, a few years ago, um, and um, and we had like a two-hour conversation over lunch. And I was, and I was, and he was explaining to me about Jesus, and and he explained to me that. Jesus is is God, and he sort of used his hand, and he said, "God, it's Jesus is God inserting God's love into the world." And he just sort of, with his palm open, he just sort of reaches out his hand. And so he wasn't talking about Jesus as a historical figure, and this is an Episcopal priest. <laughs> so he wasn't talking about God, Jesus as a historical figure. He just said Jesus almost as he didn't say this, but it was almost as if Jesus is a metaphor for God's love going into the world. And I, I was like, I had to sit back and I go, whoa, hmm, that's really different. And it, does that, you know, do I have a problem with that? Of course not. Um, do I, can I think of something in Judaism that ha, that's similar to that? You know, and I can, honestly, I can come up with things in Judaism that are similar to that, but not exactly the same. Um, so it, 
it forced me to go, okay, here's a really cool concept. I get it. I can support it. I like it. It's not exactly like mine, but I can learn and grow from that. Can I learn and grow from the idea that God's love is in the world for me? Is, of course I can. Is that Jewish? Of course it is. It's just the metaphor is slightly different. So that, that enriched, enriches my life. I actually heard one time somebody say spread butter on that, which I really liked. I think another part of that is just how you approach that dialogue and making it seem like dialogue. I think tone is really important in, I've been mentioning communication, but in communication in the way where if you're saying, you know, I'm genuinely, I'm genuinely curious about your traditions and really want to learn from you rather than like, well, why do you guys do that? I think there's Mm -hmm. so much opportunity to learn from each other and it comes in the way that we ask those questions. And it actually made me think of a quick story of like, I went to school in the South and we, there's like this big mud party thing, whatever. And I remember these um, young men sitting in the back of a pickup truck and I walked by, um, we're all like muddy. And this kid said, he was like, Oh yeah, women are stupid. And I could have been like, Oh, like I could have just like kind of gone off um, and like been enraged and just started screaming. But I maybe shouldn't have done this, but did it anyways. Climbed in the back of the truck. It was parked. And said, okay, why do you think women are stupid? And ended up having, like, an hour and a half long conversation with these young men about, like, about the idea of, like, into, like intellectualism in and the differences in, like, our idea of gender and sex. And it was just, like, it was nice to have a conversation, and it could have gone a lot of different ways um, if I had re- not reacted at all or reacted very aggressively, um, but taking that time to take a deep breath and be like, okay, let's have a conversation, let's have dialogue, rather than let's just kind of like attack that idea. And I think that is similarly applicable with understanding religion or just other perspectives from people. And that kind of that kind of makes me think of what I've been thinking about this whole last five minutes, I guess, is which which is you know my trouble with having conversations with people about their true beliefs and their religions. It's even in Christianity, too, right? Because I came from a tradition that was so oppressive to me, and I'm still growing out of it. And I see the same, and this isn't necessarily a fact of any religion, but I feel the same oppression in every other religion. And when some people talk about their religions, immediately personalizing it and thinking, okay, well, they think I'm going to hell, they think this, they think that, or there's no room for a person like me in that tradition, not that I'm looking to get into another tradition, but it's um, it's really, it, but it kind of talks to what you're talking about, which women are stupid. Well, that's personal for you, right? Yeah. I mean, you weren't already maybe having a dialogue with them when they said women were stupid, right. but but you, like you said, you could have reacted the way that inside I'm always reacting, which is like, <laughs> you know, you don't have any business yeah, talking like that, you know, and um, but you're right, you don't get real conversation then when you're defensive, I guess. So some. So sometimes, for really good reasons, we get defensive, and I, and I wouldn't want to, you know, put somebody down for doing that. But yeah, it's really a great idea, I think, to when you can sort of stay differentiated. This is not about you, you know. That person wasn't speaking about you; they didn't know you. Right, right. Um, so um, for you to sort of stay separate a little bit from the comment, and then go in and try to get to know them, and transformation can happen as you as you just described yeah. it. Um, that's very powerful. I've had. Certainly, I've had conversations with, you know, very fundamentalist Christians who believe I'm going to hell, and nothing's going to change that, and they've got the truth and the way. And um, I don't, I don't love those conversations. I don't really want to be in them every day. Um, but 
Um, I have had, con- you know, but I, I see a real value to having the conversation yeah. and to getting to know their position better. And, um, and hopefully, I mean, I can't go into that conversation because I want you to know me, um, but, I, but I need to go into it so that I get to know you. And hopefully in the process, you get to know me a little bit and maybe start to have some different questions. If I can back up for a second, the, I remembered what I was trying to think of before. Um, there's another quote that I learned from the Quran, from my Muslim friends. Um, I might have mentioned it the other night, I don't know. Um, the Quran teaches this amazing teaching that says, and really well-known teaching, that says God made, this is not an exact quote, but essentially God made us many nations, many colors, many races, many languages, many religions, so that we would get to know each other. Hmm. You think about it, that is a mind-blowing concept. And not one, by the way, our world today, thanks to the media, would, would think would come from Islam. But right there in the Quran, it says, I, God created us in all sorts of different ways for a reason. God could have made us all the same, but God made us different for a reason so that we would get to know each other. It's mind-blowing. So I, and, and again, I can find similar things in Judaism, but not exactly the same. So I will often yeah. go out there and quote you know, like the stories that I just did. And I think it makes a difference in the world when we can do that. When we can say there's a truth, getting back to your original quote there, if we can, I here's a truth from another faith tradition that I recognize as truth. To me, that is repairing the world. Tikkun olam, as we call it in, in Jewish tradition. Um, and then, but another thing, another story, um, this is from my teacher, Reb Zalman Shachter Shalomi. Uh, he died a little over two years ago, so we say, May his memory be for a blessing. If you don't know who Reb Zalman was, look it up, because he was an amazing bridge person that will never exist, anything like that again. And his archives, by the way, are at the University of Colorado Boulder. Um, Reb Zalman described in his early rabbinic days, he was studying, after he was, he was, he was just a brand new rabbi, and he was studying at Boston University. It's kind of a long story, but basically... He ends up meeting this guy. Yeah, I gotta tell the beginning of the story. He was looking for a place to do his morning prayers, and um, and he was like going into this closet to pray because um, the chapel there was all Christian, and and he didn't quite feel he could do that. And then and then one day this uh, Bible is left sitting out um, to a psalm, and I forget the exact quote at the moment, but it clearly was speaking right to him. Turns out that the guy who put it there was the director of the chapel at Boston University at that time was Howard Thurman, very famous um, uh, Christian theologian, ended up in California, and incredibly sort of an interfaith giant, um, uh, African-American. And so Reb Zalman met with Howard Thurman, long story short, and and Reverend Thurman said to him... Zaman was saying he wanted to take this class that the Thurman was teaching, but he wasn't sure if he could take a class from. He's a rabbi. He's Orthodox. He's from you know. It's like from the. He was from Germany. It's like Austria. How do I? How do I? How do I do this? Um, and Howard Thurman looked at him and he said, "What do you think? Your seat seat aren't long enough." 
So the tzitzit are the are, are, is the uh, threads on the end of uh, of the ta- of the talit, the prayer shawl, and and what he meant was, what is your connection to Judaism so short that if you were in my class you would lose your connection to Judaism, mm-hmm. and it really shook him, um, and and, he, and it's like of course not, but it was it was a phenomenal thing to say. You know, do you think your tzitzit aren't long enough? Um, so. Reb Salman ended up studying with Howard Thurman, and it was sort of the beginning of his evolution into really a global theologian. He held uh, his last position uh, in the public world was uh, as the chair of world, the uh, world religions chair at Europa in Boulder. I think this gets to a very important point in the discussion we're in in the country where we've just named a word as post-truth. And I see this tied into a lot of the reasons why evangelicals don't participate in these conversations. Because when I was young and being trained in apologetics, it was all about defending the truth and that we had to be afraid of relativism because it was going to destroy us. And yet I feel like now as I'm hearing what these conservative people are doing in in terms of ignoring facts and elevating experience or from my tradition testimony to the point of truth, quote unquote, I how I don't quite know how to articulate the question, but how do we communicate with those people that feel like walking into a synagogue or into a space with someone that has left evangelicalism is a threat to their very connection to God, and that if they do that, they're going to I don't know, like we're going to make them dirty or something. Because um, it there comes a point where in this, like my journey out of conservative evangelicalism, that I'm no longer welcome to many of my friends because I'm scary and I'm a feminist and I, I obviously don't know Jesus anymore, which is the most untrue thing that I would say about myself. And so I just, I think I love interfaith work, and but I think that... This idea of truth that you keep referring to, what do we do with that now? Like, the word is almost losing all of its meaning. And so, how do we move forward through that in a way that continues to, like, cultivate dialogue? Um, Because I think this is exactly what we accuse fundamentalist Islam of doing, of they're just, you know, raging at the world to make it like them. Well, I... I, th- I think evangelical Christians do the same thing. Um, I think it's really important. Uh, thanks for that last point. I think it's really important to re- realize we're, we're not like them. We are not, even if we are raging at the world, we're not raging at the world in order to make them like us. We might be raging at the world in order for get, to get them to accept that there are many different kinds of us, um, but we're not trying to make them like us. We're per- you know, I'm perfectly willing to accept you know, any perspective from anywhere as long as they're not enforcing it on others or doing harm to others. Um, or I would say even, I don't love doing harm to themselves or their own people. But um, And so it's interesting. In, in Judaism, there's this, um, really comes out of the mystical tradition, um, there's these two concepts, mochin de katnut and mochin de gadlut, which um, means small mind and big mind. And um, 
the small perspective and the broader perspective. And I, and I wonder if there's not a couple of different kinds of truth. Yeah. So for somebody in a particular tradition, especially a tradition that says that in order to follow me, in, in order to follow this tradition, you have to accept this truth and don't even allow yourself to be exposed to any other. To me, that might be a small T truth. It's a truth for those who are in that tradition. And who am I to take that away from them if that's what they want? And the larger truth, to me, the test of that is can somebody who's different than you connect to it? If, you know, and some of the examples like what I said before. Um, So this issue, it's funny because I don't think about, honestly, the traditional conservative evangelical world I don't interact with very much. Yeah. Um, when I'm, for example, um, at our meetings at the uh, uh, Religious Advisory Council at DU, occasionally my Christian colleagues will say, we still don't have those evangelicals in the room. What, what, what do we need to do to get them in the room? And I'm always like, oh, is that an issue? Because <laughs> um, um, I, I feel like our... We need to, to deepen our joy and our connection to God, to each other, to this creation in as loving and compassionate a way as possible. That's what I'm working on. And if you come from another tradition that somehow just can't even engage with me, oh, well, <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I think I, th- I think for a lot of us, um, you know, there is a joy in um, the the sort of reimagination of uh, our faith and some of the things we've been taught. I mean, I, I read the Bible now, um, and I see things that I'm like, how how did no one tell me this for the first? you know, 18 years of my life. Like, this is ridiculous. Like, Jesus cared about the marginalized and the poor. Like, why wasn't that a major focus of my, my faith growing up? And so I think, I think for many of us who grew up in that tradition, there's almost this scarring of, like, no, like, this is really joyful and, like, come be a part of this. Like, please, please give it up. And so it's, but it, I think you're right that there is a balance of, if you're not along on this Jesus journey of, I mean, in the Christian tradition, if you're not on this journey of, of joy that that we see in the story and and empathy and love, then, you know, go with God. But this is what I'm going to do, and I'm going to do it with Jewish people, I'm going to do it with Islamic people, and anyone who's interested in, in pursuing that. Mm-hmm. It seems to me the vast, I mean, I work with a lot of um, Christian leaders from a variety of mostly progressive Christian denominations, um, they're awesome. And we work together fabulously. And we're, we're more like each other than we are with our more conservative people in our own faith traditions. And I should say, by the way, um, that, um, again, it, this, this group at DU has been phenomenal for over, since it started right after 9-11, actually. But part of what's so fabulous about it um, is that um, it's such a diverse group that's been together for so long. We do have evangelicals in the group. Mm-hmm. 
one of the things I've had to learn is there are different kinds of evangelicals. That's you know? true. Yes, <laughs> there are, absolutely. And, and I work with, you know, we have very liberal evangelicals and, and more sort of middle-of-the-road ones. And we get, you know, some of my closest friends are Mormons, you know, and, and um, I've had amazing conversations with them. And a lot of people think, how can you be talking to the Mormons? They think this, that, and the other thing. And I'm like... You know what? So this is something I do sometimes that might get back to your original question, is that I will often suspend what I know or think I know about them just to build a connection and a relationship. So, and then, now the, the danger of that is that there are real issues of difference that we should talk about. But, I, but, but it's far, I find it's far better to, you, you know, for you and I to have a strong friendship and then confront those things is really different than starting with the things that we're going to have a hard time with. Yeah. So I, you know, again, it's like, and I would say that even of a conservative evangelical Christian, I would say build a relationship first of, of, of friendship and connection and joy, um, and then deal with those issues. And it's, it's, it's astonishingly different when you do that. And, and I've had, Traditional. I, I, don't stop, I want to stop using the word evangelical because my evangelical friends, if they hear this, are going to say, Steve, <laughs> we're not all like that. And we, and we, we do have evangelicals who are we part do. of our gathering. And, well, I think but you, they're, they're, the, they're the kind of evangelicals that you were saying, more moderate, more liberal, who, um, you know, it's, I think we have a stereotypical conventional idea when we think of evangelical. It's right? become a very you know, imprecise yes, term. Sure. Yeah. We should probably say fundamentalists because I think yeah. that. Right is more reflective of what we're responding to when we kind of use this word. Right. And I, think and I, and I work with, uh, can I mention a name? I don't know. It's like, I work... Yeah, it's, it's online. <laughs> it's up to you. Once you say it, it's out there. I, I work with a, uh, a Lutheran evangelical minister down in the uh, Littleton area. And, um, and he's willing to stand up and criticize Christianity. Um, in front of his congregants and anybody else. Um, and, and he sees the truth in all faith traditions, and he's a incredibly committed, serious Christian leader. Um, so I don't, yeah, so I, I've seen that, it, that those words can be tricky, especially for those of us from the outside who don't yeah. necessarily know what they mean. I think a huge component of part of what you're talking about is understanding why people believe what they believe. So I was talking with Slur, like, so the kids, I work at a treatment center with the kids that I, I work with. Sometimes they don't necessarily agree with their parents' beliefs, and oftentimes it boils down to religion. They're mainly, like, they're not every kid, but sometimes it's all happen where the kids will have very religious parents, and they don't really see that. And I try to talk to them a lot about, well, let's talk about why your parents believe that, and where is that coming from? So maybe your parents don't believe in the same thing you believe in, but they, they do that because they think that it's bringing those people to a place of salvation or good or they have like what are their intentions from their perspective and when you're able to kind of step outside of yourself for a second and say okay maybe I don't agree with what this person's saying or what my parents saying or whoever but it's coming from a place that I'm also coming from we're just seeing it from different le- we're seeing it through different lenses like then we're able to values. have What's up? It sounds like you're connecting on the level of right, values. Right, exactly, exactly. And then understanding, you can appreciate that concept and that idea rather than the, like, what it's manifesting into in terms of right. 
there's like many companies. So this is this is where certainly interacting with folks like us is uh, like me is tricky because I'm going to tell you that uh, the, the roadway to God is a multi-lane highway. <laughs> and if the lane you're in is not working, shift lanes. Because the important thing is to find God, not which lane you're in. So if one, like, so you, what you just said is a great example of that. So here's what we may or may not do. This is such an awesome conversation. This might be a part one and part two. So I want to transition with what you just said there. Okay. One of the things that um, I remember when we had breakfast a couple months ago, and you had said there are 70-something names that Jewish people have for God. Right. And you're less interested in the actual name that is defining God and more interested in something else, this connection, right. this divine part of the awe. spirit. It's um, so your question was? About, like, you hate about what? Well, the names All the of different God. names of God. You're less concerned right. about getting the name right. <laughs> well, I just think it's really important. And Jews need to, need, you know... I, I probably the majority of Jews aren't even aware of this, that there are 72 names of God. Um, it's interesting because we have in Jewish tradition in the Torah, um, the, the top, there's, there's actually many names for God in the Torah, but um, one that gets focused on a lot is the Tetragrammaton. It's the letter Yud, He, Vav, He, which uh, Protestant theologians many years ago came up with, uh, like a century ago, to start gave that the word Yahweh. Yeah. <laughs> we used to, like, write our history textbook, like, the people who were our history textbooks, like, emails, being like, why do you call it Yahweh? But Yahweh, right. Like, <laughs> <laughs> because that's sort of a way you might put those letters together. Um, but, um, so even that name of God, we're not, so, first of all, we don't know how it was pronounced. It's written with four consonants and no vowels. Um, the high priest in the temple pronounced it according to the to the Torah once a year um, um, actually that's probably in the Mishnah but um, was pronounced once a year um, we don't why because if we could name God even in four letters we would I would say destroy God mm-hmm. I would say we, we make God into an idol um, so what's interesting is the yod he vav he also is connected to the verb to be or just being. So so God is being, isness, life force, um, um, nature. Is that part of like the root for being? Yeah, yeah. Haya um, um, oh, yeah. he is, is is to be. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, so it's the it's the root of being. So anyway, so that's like totally mystical. And so, oh, so the thing is, when we read it in the Torah, instead of reading it out, we say Adonai. So it's kind of funny, because if, you, if you're reading the Hebrew, you're reading along, and all of a sudden you see this yod heh vav and so you don't say that. You say this other word. And um, because it's a, it's, a, it's a mystical idea that we're not supposed to try to encapsulate in a word. So there's that idea. And then there are... There's Elohim, there's, all, there's Ale, there's all sorts of different names for God in the Torah. And there's, according to Jewish tradition, 72 names for God. Why? Because any one name does not des- describe God. And can, you tell, can anybody tell me the 72 names? I doubt it. <laughs> My gift oh, of fives. We also, I, I remember being taught that Yud Hei Vav was like a shortened version of like one time somebody saying, God's full name, and then all, and then them just like shortening it, so we never knew what it was, kind of a thing. I, I don't know. I, I have no idea where that came from. I like. I didn't well, know here's, it was great. I learned it, in, but 
that was like a concept that was always like sort of somewhere in there. So in Judaism, it's it's not pronounced um, in. Uh, in, in more traditional communities, the word Elohim gets changed to Elohim. Um, Adonai actually even gets changed to Adoshem. They do all sorts of things to sort of stay away from saying it. Um, but my teacher, um, Rabbi Arthur Waskow, who just celebrated his 83rd birthday, may he live long, um, many years ago he said, I think I know how they pronounced it. And he stood up, I saw him in, in a reform synagogue in Minneapolis a million years ago, and he said, and he's this big guy with a huge beard and deep voice, and he says, takes a deep breath, and he goes, <laughs> He says, I think that's what they pronounced. It's a breath. It's an mm-hmm. exhale. Mm-hmm. What? I'm into that one. <laughs> I told one of my friends after he spoke last week, I think it might be Jewish. <laughs> it's not true. But it happens every time I'm around a rabbi. <laughs> it does. Yeah. I'm going to be converted at some point. My family what's, will not be surprised. <laughs> well, what's cool about that, I want to say, I mean, it's cool, but what's cool about it is that it's still not a word. It's a breath. It's yeah. the, Arthur would say it's the breath of life. It's In many ways, it's better than anything I've seen because it allows us to, in a sense, make us a word-like sound that doesn't encapsulate it into, into a, a four walls. Um, so yeah, so I think um, it's critical. It's a teaching that you could take from Jewish tradition that says, we believe in God. We absolutely believe in God. We just don't think that any one definition defines God. So we need to experience God, is what I yeah. hope I said last week. Yeah. Um, that um, my colleague and teacher, Rabbi Marsha Prager, um, is credited with saying, I'm, I don't care so much how you conceive of God. I only care that you have an experience of God. Oof. That was fun. Here is the beauty of podcasting. You never know what you're going to get when you press that red record button and you're sitting across the table with your friends talking to a rabbi Stephen Boothnadav was fantastic. We realized about halfway through this episode, we weren't even going to get to awe and wonder channeling Abraham Joshua Heschel until way into the interview. And so we've decided to make this part one. Part two, my friends, is coming very soon. So make sure you go on iTunes. You give us a five-star rating. Review this good stuff. Give us a sweet review and share that hopalicious goodness with your friends. See you soon. Peace.